This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort. I'm your host, Ari Lamb, and we have an amazing show here for you today. We have one of my favorite people in the world, Karen Swallow Pryor, and we're going to get to all of that. But first, uh, a bit about what we do here. Ancient tradition divides up the Bible into 54 portions, just about one for each week of the year. And so each week we take a look at one portion and we identify a big idea or a big question that comes out of it. So let's dive right into this week's section, which is basically Genesis chapters 23 through 25. And the central story of these chapters is all about how Abraham goes about trying to find a wife for his son Isaac. And to get this done, he enlists the help of his servant and basically dispatches him back to his hometown in Mesopotamia to find the right person. And this is where the story becomes amazing, because the problem is Abraham doesn't really give his servant any guidance about whom to choose. So what the servant does is he plants himself next to a well in the middle of Abraham's old neighborhood. And he says to himself, look, I'm a stranger here. No one knows who I am. And so, you know, no one has any reason to look out for me. So the first woman I find who treats me, a total stranger, with kindness, she's the one I'll ask to come back and marry Isaac and join Abraham's family. And sure enough, along comes a young woman named Rebecca, who sees Abraham's servant sitting all alone. And Rebecca decides to draw water from the well, not only for him, a thirsty stranger, but for all of his animals as well. And because of this extraordinary act of compassion, which she had no reason at all to do, Abraham's servant asks her to come back with him to marry Isaac. And she does, and the rest is history. She becomes a central and a crucial uh, biblical hero. And the message of the story, of course, is that true heroism lies in going that extra mile for others, especially when you have nothing to gain from it. And it's in those moments that we find genuine human greatness. And I've actually been thinking about this a lot recently, the question, who are our heroes? And, you know, this past summer, I, um, I lost my grandfather and teacher, Rabbi Norman Lamb, who's one of the legendary Jewish leaders in American history and the greatest Jewish orator of the last hundred years, I think. And it was obviously very painful. He passed away just about a month after my grandmother died from COVID. And I'll tell you, I was devastated. He was my, my lifelong hero. And more importantly, he was an inspiration to countless people throughout the country and across the globe. And look, there are a lot of stories of him doing the kind of big, magnificent things that great leaders and public figures do. But honestly, my all-time favorite story about him, you know, the one that I think best defines his heroism, is about a quiet moment in his career that actually got almost no attention whatsoever. So he's a young rabbi in New York. And there was this little girl in his congregation named Lori. And Lori loved going to the services every week, so she was there all the time. And outside of the synagogue, she was a bit shy and reserved, but she had this little pet bird at home that was the joy of her life. Uh, Now, one weekend on a Saturday over Shabbat services, my grandfather noticed that Lori wasn't there. And then over the next few weeks, he noticed that she still hadn't shown up. And he became concerned, so he called up her home, only to learn that Lori's pet bird had died 
And she was so upset that she couldn't summon the energy to return to the synagogue. Now, you have to remember, my grandfather was already at the time a a major faith leader, a leading theologian, and he was only gaining more prominence as a public thinker, but it didn't matter. He dropped everything. He shut himself in his office, and he labored long and hard over a three-page handwritten personal letter to Lori, and my father actually has the original copy, containing a eulogy for her beloved pet bird. And it's just a complete and utter masterpiece. He talks about life and loss and the importance of loving someone so fiercely that you miss it when it's gone. And here's how he ended the letter. I know, Lori, that losing the pet bird was a painful experience, but I hope that the explanation I gave you will help you in some way to accept the fact with less anguish. If the death of that little bird will help you achieve this kind of perspective then that little bird will itself have made a real contribution to your life, and in that way it will live on. And I gotta tell you, those lines and the whole story are seared into my memory and into my soul. And that's what heroism is. Real heroism isn't fame. It's not being right all the time. It's not winning the adoration of others or winning the most arguments or having powerful friends. No, real, true heroism means dropping everything to be there for someone who needed a little kindness in her life, even if, or especially because, there was nothing to be gained from it. And that's why Rebecca was a hero. That's why Rabbi Norman Lamb was a hero. And that's the kind of hero we need right now in a society so afflicted by polarization and loneliness. And let me tell you, it's the kind of hero you can be. Your family members, your neighbors, your community, your nation— They need you to drop everything you're doing right now and do a kindness for someone else, just because the world needs a little more kindness in it and for no other reason. Now, look, kindness isn't just something that happens. It's not like turning on a tap. Kindness really is a habit that we need to cultivate. It's a muscle that needs to be exercised. So to talk about building those kindness muscles, I brought on one of America's most penetrating religious thinkers, professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, best-selling author, an absolute fire Twitter personality, and one of my favorite people, Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, thank you so much for being here. It's so great to be with you, and I'm just, thank you for sharing that story, and I'm also greatly sorry for your two losses of your grandparents. Thank you. Uh, really, it's 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 something so special and and it made me really think of you and that's why I'm so glad to have you here because you've written some of the most important things I've ever read about kindness and in fact in one of your books you wrote kindness isn't natural or nice and now that seems really counterintuitive so can you explain what you mean by that sure well you know there are two things there that you said that I need to unpack And I'll start with natural. Of course, you know, there are different views of human nature and whether human nature is innately good or fallen or depraved and all of those things. But I don't think we have to look far to realize that, you know, we really do have difficulty as human beings um, appealing to our better nature, so to speak. And so the whole project of, of this book that you're talking about on reading well is looking at literature, but looking at it through the lens of virtue ethics. And virtue, according to Aristotle and many other thinkers, is it's just simply the things that make us most excellent in being human. And there are lots of those qualities that we can exhibit 
But we also, according to Aristotle and according to the biblical narrative, these are things that we have to fight to do and to improve and to cultivate. It actually just comes much more naturally to us to to be vicious, to have vices, to be bad. And so kindness is one of those things. I mean, certainly some people probably are more naturally kind than others, whatever that means, or they've been nurtured to be kind. But I think all of us struggle to be kinder than we want to be or, you know, or are on any given day. Right. It's much easier in the moment to be selfish. It's always easier to be selfish, always. And kindness usually does exact something from us, some sort of sacrifice, large or small. And then the other quality that you talked about it, and and we do tend to use these words synonymously today, being kind or being nice, and their history is actually very, very different. The word nice in its original etymology comes from a word that meant ignorant. And so as it developed over time, it also came to mean foolish. So if you read Jane Austen or other 18th and 19th century works of literature and you see the word nice, it's really not always a good thing. Um, Nice guys finish last. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And so it's just it's interesting to look at the etymology because I think as I talk about in the book, kindness isn't just it's so much more than being nice. It involves so much more. And that's why it is the word, you know, the term that's used to talk about the virtue of kindness. So. One of the words you mentioned that I think is so apropos is sacrifice. And isn't it fascinating that this kind of family, this sort of the family of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, sort of the early heroes of Genesis, the two things that they're known for in the biblical tradition, in the Jewish tradition and in the Christian tradition is, are actually those two things, kindness and sacrifice, right? The binding of Isaac, where Abraham is actually called to sacrifice Isaac, is actually a key part of this family's history. So what what's the role of, of sacrifice in kindness? Well, I mean, if we think about... Um about how you know kindness is so much more than being nice. I mean, it, it helps, again, because I'm a word person, it helps to start with the etymology of the word. And it comes from the same word that we still use today, the word kin, which means family. And if we think about, I mean, in, in some, to be kind is to treat someone like family and to love them in the way that we love family. And we know from being part of a family that there is so much sacrifice that is involved. Obviously, the story of Abraham and Isaac is the meta story of sacrifice, but just being part of a family and making decisions on behalf of others rather than oneself, those are the kinds of sacrifices we make every day living in community. And so that's why kindness is so much more and even and it involves more than just being nice because sometimes being truly kind is the hard thing or the not nice thing. You know, we have the saying it's cruel to be kind. I mean, it's just sometimes we have to do the hard real thing in order to which is what it is to be kind to bring about the greater result in the long term, which sometimes can be require sacrifice and unpleasantness. So you mentioned that notion of community and the way that it's sort of connected to the idea of sacrifice, of giving up something, of thinking of those beyond yourself, and how it's ultimately, therefore, rooted in kindness. And, you know, so in recent years, I think it's actually quite apropos if we think about the American situation, right? Americans have gotten lonelier by basically every measure, right? So Americans are dying in increasing numbers from so-called, you know, deaths of despair. Young men and now increasingly young women are experiencing an apparent suicide epidemic. I actually saw a, a Cigna report on the eve of COVID. 
and essentially documents this massive rise in American loneliness, frightening rise in American loneliness. You know, I know it's not just a problem in America, of course, but either way, it seems to me that loneliness is in many ways the absence of kindness, right? Because kindness is about coming together. Loneliness is what happens when we don't. So could we say that America's loneliness epidemic is actually really a kindness deficiency? And how would we go about solving that? What role would reconstructing community play in that? Like, why have we lost the ability to sustain community in America? And how do we how do we rebuild that that function? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love how you put it that, you know, we have a kindness deficit. And I think it goes back to your opening story. We have a distorted sense of even what it means to be a hero or to be a good person or an influential person. Because really to be the most heroic person we can be, to be the most influential person, you know, that's something in my sphere I get asked about a lot because my people use the term, which I hate, influencer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, like being an influencer. Um, and uh, I actually remember the first time some students interviewed me and asked me how they could be influencers and I didn't know what the word meant. I, I, I mean, in their way. And so I said, well, just, you know, just you are an influencer with the people that you live with and talk to and interact with every day, because that's what I thought an influencer was. And now I, <laughs> um, and so going back to kindness, we would rather be, as you said before, win an argument or be influential on the internet rather than be kind to the people who are around us. And, and let's face it, we only have so much time in the day. So are we choosing as I too often do to be on Twitter rather than spending time with my elderly parents, just having a conversation with them, especially in COVID, because my my parents who live here with us, you know, can't go out and socialize as much. And so that actually means that they rely more on me to just talk about the trivial things, the everyday things. And I actually find myself getting impatient sometimes because, you know, it seems like a waste of time. You can't get retweeted in a normal conversation, right? You know <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And so multiply that 10 times over or 100 times over for the people who don't have that kind of interaction. And yet we have all this time to spend in other things that we're doing in things that we tend to think of as more heroic when really we can actually save lives just by being kind in a humane and intimate and small way with the people around us. You know, I feel like it's so funny, you know, as someone who who really deeply enjoys Twitter and feel like it's added to my life in, in many fold ways. One thing that I, I suppose I do perceive is that Twitter encourages me in some ways to focus on villains, mm -hmm. identifying them, disagreeing with them, protecting others from them. But it doesn't encourage me as much now that you're mentioning it to focus on heroes and cultivating mm -hmm. a, a definition of what a hero is, identifying people who fit that definition. And maybe that's what we're missing, as you say, sort of a sense of, of heroism. Yeah, I think, you know, Twitter is a platform and most social media is a kind of platform where the animosity and the polarization it works better. It gets you more clicks and more retweets and more, you know, it's designed to amp up the dissension rather than the kindness. But I do intentionally try to to use it in another way and to to be kind on Twitter. Well, you're a force oh. for incredible goodness oh. on Twitter. That's well, for sure. Thank you. So actually, to, to shift themes, but really in the same theme, you know, one of the things you've written and, and taught a tremendous amount about, and you, you alluded to it before, is the importance of reading great books, great works of literature. And it's a crucial tool for making us better people. 
And now, you know, I imagine most folks are normally just going to head straight for the spy novels in the airport bookstore. Or I guess, I mean, I guess back when airports were a thing, right? <laughs> right. But, and, and, and please God, they will be again. But seriously, right? I, I, I bet most people find great books intimidating. And so what's the case for giving it a shot Mm. and picking up something a little more challenging, maybe even for the first time? That is such a great question. And and of course, there's really nothing wrong with reading, you know, a spy novel or a thriller for entertainment. That's a wonderful way to spend time. But I think it's important to kind of distinguish between the things that we read that are for entertainment or information, you know, like like those those works or we read information we read a blog or a newspaper article for information and actual you know literary works of art which operates on a completely different level it's, i mean it's the same thing as using paint to cover your wall and make it pretty which is nice i do that or creating a painting and looking at that i mean that's the difference between just reading material and literary art and literary art makes demands upon us. And it's not an automatic thing. It's not an automatic thing that if you read great works of literature, you're going to be a better person because there are lots of brilliant, educated people out there who have not become better people by reading great literature. I, I think we could <laughs> we all gotta, come up with candidates yeah, in our mind. Yeah, we, we won't even name them. Um, right. <laughs> people who are nice to dogs or something, but, you know. Right. <laughs> um, but going back to the whole topic of virtue, especially the way that Aristotle talked about it, being kind of a muscle or something that you have to exercise, reading works of literature as an art form requires us to kind of exercise our our empathy, our critical thinking, our perspective. It requires us to see the world through someone else's eyes or and often to you know to see the world in a different time or place or a different perspective from someone who's not like us. And that itself is an opportunity to exercise these qualities like kindness and like gentleness and like humility uh, because the act of reading itself, especially when it requires that kind of challenge from us of, of patience and attention span, it allows us to exercise those kinds of virtues. So in other words, picking up a, a serious novel of that sort, it's sort of like going to the gym or lifting weights, right? It's it's not something you do every second of the day. I myself, I'm a big spy novel guy, but it's the it's kind of like, you know, you build muscle. That's important. Exactly. And, and you know, when we talk about virtue ethics and literature, oftentimes we think about oh, the lessons that the works impart. And that's, you know, that is fine. We learn about good and evil and we learn about good choices and bad choices from the stories. But it's more than that. It's, it's really, like you said, we're, we're exercising muscles of perspective and patience and diligence and just immersing ourselves in the in the world and seeing it through someone else's eyes, which does a lot more for us than just teach us a lesson. Although the lessons are good too. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, my grandfather devoted an enormous amount of time to thinking through this question from sort of an Orthodox traditional Jewish perspective, which is, you know, if you have a finite amount of time in the day and you're going to pick up one challenging book, well, the Bible's a pretty challenging book. That's a, it's a good thing to read. It's authorized by tradition. And, you know, he was, a, you know, a deeply traditional rabbinic thinker who spent, you know, an enormous amount of, an extraordinary amount of time uh, reading the classical Jewish texts, the biblical texts, the Talmudic texts. And I imagine in, a, in the Christian tradition as well, you know, if you got to spend time on something, the Bible's a pretty good place to start. So what's the case for a person of faith who feels called by and bound to revelation 
to pick up Aristotle or to pick up Virgil or to pick up uh, Emily Dickinson or something like that? That's one of my favorite questions. So thank you for asking that. Oh, my too. (laughs) Well, and there are, you know, I'll just give a few answers to that. One is, of course, that, you know, all of us in the Judeo-Christian tradition are part of this tradition called the people of the book, right? So we are people of the book. And so, of course, that's referring to the scriptures. But because we are word-centered people, then really exercising that muscle of reading and analyzing and evaluating words in their complexity and in their resonance and their implications and then all the various interpretations. When we do that with any kind of text, then it applies when we pick up the Bible. I mean, it is the muscle analogy is so great because if you lift weights at the gym several times a week, you will be better at lifting that uh, boulder that fell on a human being, hurting them. You, You will have the ability to pick that up better because you've been doing this sort of artificial kind of of exercise. And so anytime we are improving our ability to grapple with written texts and analyze and interpret and evaluate, then that applies to the greatest text of all. We can use that same kind of muscle in reading and appreciating the Word of God. I love it. And, you know, I feel like that's actually a, a perfect segue into the last question I'd love to ask you, which is, I feel like it's so easy and it's definitely tempting for some folks in the media to lump all religious thinkers together as faith-based or whatever, something like that. But you actually represent a particular tradition, right? You're not just a religious thinker, you're a Christian thinker. And I know you've thought deeply about this. So what's the role that that tradition should or will play in the next stage of American history, right? So what's a Christian vision for American life and society? Mm. Oh, well, well, I, I wish I could speak for all of my people, but far from... <laughs> right, as, as, as I am speaking currently for all Jews, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> because, you know, for anyone who's not familiar with me or with the institutional affiliation you mentioned at the beginning, I mean, not only am I a Christian, but I'm like one of, you know, I'm a conservative evangelical Christian, you know, right, the, the, right, the kind right. that all of the attention is on because of the... Because of the election, <laughs> this election and that. And so, <laughs> so I, you know, I'm, I'm in that community and, it, and it's an interesting and hard place to be because even within that, in that community that we have some really, really deep divisions, um, politically, theologically. In a traditional religious community? No, come on. <laughs> you wouldn't know anything about that, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> so it, it's hard because in my community, we're just as dis- divided as we are as a nation um, and, you know, even, even it, as a world today. Um, and so... As hard and difficult as it is, I see it as an opportunity and hope for my people and for all people that there is refining that is going on now. I mean, I've said, you know, if you know anything and I know you know about Christian history, I actually think we're in like a 500 year moment right now. Um uh, let's let's do it. I love this. <laughs> I do. I, I mean, you know, there's some sort of 500 chunks of Christian history, and <laughs> we traditional religious folks think in long time horizons. <laughs> That's right. That's the the best thing about yes. us. <laughs> and so, so that actually, as hard as it is, and as hopeless and bleak as it we can seem on a given day when we wake up, I mean, I think this is a, an opportunity where I think that that my faith community is being refined and challenged and has an opportunity. I mean, not that the next 500-year epic is going to be perfect and flawless, but we have some big mistakes that we made um, against the image of God in the past 500 years of, of you know the Protestant tradition and then a couple hundred years later, my evangelical tradition. 
And right now we're facing, you know, a reality check and a soul and heart check. And I think we can come through on the other side with something new and different and go into the future. And, and so, yeah, that's big, I guess, but um, it is that, it is that 500 year chunk of history version that, that kind of keeps me hopeful and realize it's not just about today or this election or, you know, or even this country, for goodness sake, this country is a, is a baby compared to both of our religious traditions. Amen. Karen Swallow Pryor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Look, right now, especially just after a difficult election, we're in villain-seeking mode. We want to find the bad guys and put them in the ground. But the story of Rebecca reminds us of how things could be different. What if, instead, we spent our time looking for heroes? And not just looking for them, but actually being them ourselves. I mean, how different would society look if we each took a moment out of every day to do something kind for someone else with no hope of gain? Maybe especially for someone we'd rather not spend time with at all. I don't know for sure, but I think we should be willing to try. I'm Ari Lam, and thanks for joining Good Faith Effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.